Chapter 1. My First Meeting with Andrew Carnegie For more than a quarter of a century, my major purpose has been that of isolating and organizing into a philosophy of achievement the causes of both failure and success, with the object of being helpful to others who have neither the inclination nor the opportunity to engage in this form of research. My labor began in 1908 as the result of an interview that I had with the late Andrew Carnegie. I frankly told Mr. Carnegie that I wished to enter law school and that I had conceived the idea of paying my way through school by interviewing successful men and women, finding out how they came by their success and writing stories of my discoveries for magazines. At the end of our first visit, Mr. Carnegie asked whether or not I possessed enough courage to carry out a suggestion he wished to offer me. I replied that courage was about all I did have and that I was prepared to do my best to carry out any suggestion he cared to offer. He then said, your idea of writing stories about men and women who are successful is commendable as far as it goes, and I have no intention of trying to discourage you from carrying out your purpose. But I must tell you that if you wish to be of enduring service, not only to those now living, but to posterity as well, you can do so if you will take the time to organize all of the causes of failure as well as all of the causes of success. There are millions of people in the world who have not the slightest conception of the causes of success and failure. The schools and colleges teach practically everything except the principles of individual achievement. They require young men and women to spend from four to eight years acquiring abstract knowledge, but do not teach them what to do with this knowledge after they get it. The world is in need of a practical, understandable philosophy of achievement, organized from the factual knowledge gained from the experience of men and women in the great university of life. In the entire field of philosophy, I find nothing which even remotely resembles the sort of philosophy which I have in mind. We have few philosophers who are capable of teaching men and women the art of living. It seems to me that here is an opportunity which should challenge an ambitious young man of your type. But ambition alone is not enough for this task which I have suggested. The one who undertakes it must have courage and tenacity. The job will require at least 20 years of continuous effort, during which the one who undertakes it will have to earn his living from some other source, because this sort of research is never profitable at the outset. And generally, those who have contributed to civilization through work of this nature have had to wait a hundred years or so after their own funerals to receive recognition for their labor. If you undertake this job, you should interview not only the few who have succeeded, but the many who have failed. You should carefully analyze many thousands of people who have been classed as failures. And I mean by the term failures, men and women who come to the closing chapter of life disappointed because they did not attain the goal which they had set their hearts upon achieving. As inconsistent as it may seem, you will learn more about how to succeed from the failures than you will from the so-called successes. They will teach you what not to do. Along toward the end of your labor, if you carry it through successfully, you will make a discovery which may be a great surprise to you. You will discover that the cause of success is not something separate and apart from the man, that it is a force so intangible in nature that the majority of men never recognize it a force which might be properly called the other self. Noteworthy is the fact that this other self seldom exerts its influence 
or makes itself known except at times of unusual emergency, when men are forced through adversity and temporary defeat to change their habits and to think their way out of difficulty. My experience has taught me that a man is never quite so near success as when that which he calls failure has overtaken him, for it is on occasions of this sort that he is forced to think. If he thinks accurately and with persistence, he discovers that so-called failure usually is nothing more than a signal to rearm himself with a new plan or purpose. Most real failures are due to limitations which men set up in their own minds. If they had the courage to go one step further, they would discover their error. Begin life anew. Mr. Carnegie's speech reshaped my entire life and planted in my mind a burning purpose which has driven me ceaselessly in this despite the fact that I had but a vague idea as to what he meant by the term other self. During my labor of research into the causes of failure and success, I've had the privilege of analyzing more than 25,000 men and women who were rated as failures and over 500 who were classed as successful. Many years ago, I caught my first glimpse of that other self Mr. Carnegie had mentioned. The discovery came, as he said it would, as the result of two major turning points of my life, which constituted emergencies that forced me to think my way out of difficulties such as I had never before experienced. I wish it were possible to describe this discovery without the use of the personal pronoun, but this is impossible because it came through personal experiences from which it cannot be separated. To give you the complete picture, I shall have to go back to the first of these two major turning points and bring you up to the discovery step by step. The research necessary for the accumulation of the data from which the 17 principles of achievement and the 30 major causes of failure were organized required years of labor. I had reached the false conclusion that my task of organizing a complete philosophy of personal achievement had been completed. Far from having been completed, my work had merely begun. I had erected the skeleton of a philosophy by organizing the 17 principles of achievement and the 30 major causes of failure, but that skeleton had to be covered with the flesh of application and experience. Moreover, it had to be given a soul through which it might inspire men and women to meet obstacles without going down under them. The soul, which had yet to be added, as I discovered later, became available only after my other self made its appearance through two major turning points of my life. Resolving to turn my attention and whatever talents I might possess into monetary returns through business and professional channels, I decided to go into the profession of advertising, and I became the advertising manager of the LaSalle Extension University of Chicago. Everything went along beautifully for one year, at the end of which I was seized by a violent dislike for my job, and I resigned. I then entered the chain store business with the former president of the LaSalle Extension University and became the president of the Betsy Ross Candy Company. Unfortunate, or what seemed to me at the time to be unfortunate, disagreements with business associates disengaged me from that undertaking. The lure of advertising still was in my blood, and I tried again to give expression to it by organizing a school of advertising and salesmanship as a part of Bryant and Stratton Business College. The enterprise was sailing smoothly, and we were making money rapidly when the United States entered World War I. In response to an inner urge which no words can describe, 
I walked away from the school and entered the service of the United States government under President Woodrow Wilson's personal direction, leaving a perfectly sound business to disintegrate. On Armistice Day 1918, I began the publication of the Golden Rule magazine. Despite the fact that I did not have a penny of capital, the magazine grew rapidly and soon gained a nationwide circulation of nearly half a million, ending its first year's business with a profit of $3,156. Some years later, I learned from an experienced publisher that no man experienced in the publication and distribution of national magazines would think of starting such a magazine with less than a half a million dollars of capital. The Golden Rule magazine and I were destined to part company. The more we succeeded, the more discontented I became, until finally, due to an accumulation of petty annoyances caused by business associates, I made them a present of the magazine and stepped out. Through that move, perhaps I tossed a small fortune over my shoulder. Next, I organized a training school for salesmen. My first assignment was to train a sales army of 3,000 people for a chain store company, for which I received $10 for each salesman who went through my classes. Within six months, my work had netted me a little over $30,000. Success, as far as money was concerned, was crowning my efforts with abundance. Again, I became fidgety inside. I was not happy. It became more obvious every day that no amount of money would ever make me happy. Without the slightest reasonable excuse for my actions, I stepped out and gave up a business from which I might easily have earned a healthy salary. My friends and business associates thought I was crazy, and they were not backward about saying so. Frankly, I was inclined to agree with them, but there seemed nothing I could do about it. I was seeking happiness, and I had not found it. At least that is the only explanation I could offer for my unusual actions. What man really knows himself? That was during the late fall of 1923. I found myself stranded in Columbus, Ohio, without funds, and worse still, without a plan by which to work my way out of my difficulty. It was the first time in my life that I had actually been stranded because of lack of funds. Many times previously, I had found money to be rather shy, but never before had I failed to get what I needed for my personal conveniences. The experience stunned me. I seemed totally at sea as to what I could or should do. I thought of a dozen plans by which I might solve my problem, but dismissed them all as being either impractical or impossible of achievement. I felt like one who was lost in a jungle without a compass. Every attempt I made to work my way out brought me back to the original starting point. For nearly two months, I suffered with the worst of all human ailments, indecision. I knew the 17 principles of personal achievement, but what I did not know was how to apply them. Without knowing it, I was facing one of those emergencies of life through which, Mr. Carnegie had told me, men sometimes discover their other selves. My distress was so great that it never occurred to me to sit down and analyze its cause and seek its cure. Defeat is converted into victory. One afternoon, I reached a decision through which I found the way out of my difficulty. I had a feeling that I wanted to get out into the open spaces of the country where I could get a breath of fresh air and think. I began to walk and had gone seven or eight miles when I felt myself brought suddenly to a standstill. For several minutes, I stood there as if I had been glued to my tracks. Everything around me went dark. I could hear the loud sound of some form of energy which was vibrating at a very high rate. 
Then my nerves became quiet, my muscles relaxed, and a great calmness came over me. The atmosphere began to clear, and as it did so, I received a command from within which came in the form of a thought, as near as I can describe it. The command was so clear and distinct that I could not misunderstand it. In substance, it said, The time has come for you to complete the philosophy of achievement which you began at Carnegie's suggestion. Go back home at once and begin transferring the data you've gathered from your own mind to written manuscripts. My other self had awakened. For a few minutes, I was frightened. The experience was unlike any I had ever undergone before. I turned and walked rapidly until I reached home. As I approached the house, I saw my three little boys looking out of a window of our house at our neighbor's children, who were dressing a Christmas tree in the house next door. Then I recalled that it was Christmas Eve. Moreover, I recalled with a feeling of deep distress, such as I had never known before, that there would be no Christmas tree at our house. The look of disappointment on the faces of my children reminded me painfully of that fact. I went into the house, sat down at my typewriter, and began at once to reduce to writing the discoveries I had made concerning the causes of success and failure. As I placed the first sheet of paper into the typewriter, I was interrupted by that same strange feeling which had come over me out in the country a few hours before, and this thought flashed into my mind. Your mission in life is to complete the world's first philosophy of individual achievement. You have been trying in vain to escape your task, each effort having brought you failure. You are seeking happiness. Learn this lesson once and forever, that you will find happiness only by helping others to find it. You've been a stubborn student. You had to be cured of your stubbornness through disappointment. Within a few years from now, the whole world will start through an experience which will place millions of people in need of the philosophy which you have been directed to complete. Your big opportunity to find happiness by rendering useful service will have come. Go to work and do not stop until you've completed and published the manuscripts which you have begun. I was conscious of having arrived at last at the end of life's rainbow, and I was happy. Doubt makes its appearance. The spell, if the experience may be so called, passed away. I began to write. Shortly thereafter, my reason suggested to me that I was embarking upon a fool's mission. The idea of a man who was down and almost out, presuming to write a philosophy of personal achievement, seemed so ludicrous that I laughed hilariously, perhaps scornfully. I squirmed in my chair, ran my fingers through my hair, and tried to create an alibi that would justify me in my own mind in taking the sheet of paper out of my typewriter before I had really begun to write. But the urge to continue was stronger than the desire to quit. I became reconciled to my task and went ahead. Looking backward now, in the light of all that has happened, I can see that those minor experiences of adversity through which I had passed were among the most fortunate and profitable of all of my experiences. They were blessings in disguise because they forced me to continue a work which finally brought me an opportunity to make myself more useful to the world than I might have been had I succeeded in any previous plan or purpose. For almost three months I worked on those manuscripts, completing them during the early part of 1924. As soon as they had been completed, I felt myself again being lured by the desire to get back into the great American game of business. Succumbing to the lure, I purchased the Metropolitan Business College in Cleveland, Ohio, and began to lay plans for increasing its capacity. 
By the end of 1924, we had developed and expanded by adding new courses until we were doing a business nearly double the best previous record the school had ever known. Again, the germ of discontentment began to make itself felt in my blood. Again, I knew that I could not find happiness in that sort of endeavor. I turned the business over to my associates and went on the lecture platform, lecturing on the philosophy of achievement to the organization of which I had devoted so many of my previous years. One night I was booked to lecture in Canton, Ohio. Fate, or whatever it is that seems sometimes to shape the destiny of men, no matter how hard they may try to battle against it, again stepped into the picture and brought me face to face with a painful experience. In my Canton audience sat Don R. Mellett, publisher of the Canton Daily News. Mr. Mellett became so thoroughly interested in the philosophy of individual achievement on which I lectured that night that he invited me to come to see him the following day. That visit resulted in a partnership agreement which was to have taken place on the 1st of the following January when Mr. Mellett planned to resign as publisher of the Daily News to take charge of the business and publishing of the philosophy on which I had been working. However, in July 1926, Mr. Mellett was murdered by Pat McDermott, an underworld character, and a Canton, Ohio policeman, both of whom were sentenced to life imprisonment. He was murdered because he was exposing in his newspaper a hookup between the bootleggers and certain members of the Canton police force. The crime was one of the most shocking that the Prohibition era produced. The morning after Mr. Mellett's death, I was called on the telephone and put on notice by some unknown person that I had one hour in which to get out of Canton, that I could go voluntarily within the hour, but if I waited longer, I would probably go in a pine box. My business association with Mr. Mellett had apparently been misunderstood. His murderers evidently believed I was directly connected with the expose he was making in the newspapers. I did not wait for the one-hour time limit to expire, but immediately got into my automobile and drove down to the home of relatives in the mountains of West Virginia, where I remained until the murderers had been placed in jail. That experience came well within the category described by Mr. Carnegie as an emergency that forces men to think. For the first time in my life, I knew the pain of constant fear. My experience of a few years before in Columbus had filled my mind with doubt and temporary indecision, but this one had filled it with a fear which I seemed unable to remove. During the time that I was in hiding, I seldom left the house at night, and when I did step out, I kept my hand on an automatic pistol in my coat pocket with a safety catch unlatched for immediate action. If a strange automobile stopped in front of the house where I was hiding, I went into the basement and carefully scrutinized its occupants through the basement windows. After some months of this sort of experience, my nerves began to crack. My courage had completely left me. The ambition which had heartened me during the long years of labor in my search for the causes of failure and success also had departed. Slowly, step by step, I felt myself slipping into a state of lethargy from which I was afraid I should never be able to emerge. The feeling must have been closely akin to that experience by one who suddenly steps into quicksand and realizes that every effort to extricate himself carries him just so much deeper. Fear is a self-generating morass. If the seed of insanity had been in my makeup, surely it would have germinated during those months of living death. Foolish indecision. Irresolute dreams, doubt, and fear were my mind's concern day and night. The emergency I faced was disastrous in two ways. 
First, the very nature of it kept me in a constant state of indecision and fear. Secondly, the forced concealment kept me in idleness with its attendant heaviness of time, which I naturally devoted to worry. My reasoning faculty had almost been paralyzed. I realized that I had to work myself out of this state of mind, but how? The resourcefulness which had helped me to meet all previous emergencies seemed to have completely taken wing, leaving me helpless. Out of my difficulties, which were burdensome enough up to this point, grew another which seemed more painful than all the others combined. It was the realization that I had spent the better portion of my past years in chasing a rainbow, searching hither and yon for the causes of success, and finding myself now more helpless than any of the 25,000 people whom I had judged as being failures. This thought was almost maddening. Moreover, it was extremely humiliating, because I had been lecturing all over the country, in schools and colleges and before business organizations, presuming to tell other people how to apply the 17 principles of success, while here I was, unable to apply them myself. I was sure that I could never again face the world with a feeling of confidence. Every time I looked at myself in a mirror, I noticed an expression of self-contempt on my face, and not infrequently I did say things to the man in the mirror which are not principal. I had begun to place myself in the category of charlatans who offer others a remedy for failure which they themselves cannot successfully apply. The criminals who had murdered Mr. Mellet had been tried and sent to the penitentiary for life. Therefore, it was perfectly safe, as far as they were concerned, for me to come out of hiding and again take up my work. I could not come out, however, because now I faced circumstances more frightful than the criminals who had sent me into hiding. The experience had destroyed whatever initiative I had possessed. I felt myself in the clutches of some depressing influence which seemed like a nightmare. I was alive. I could move around. But I could not think of a single move by which I might continue to seek the goal which I had, at Mr. Carnegie's suggestion, set for myself. I was rapidly becoming indifferent not only toward myself, but worse still, I was becoming grouchy and irritable toward those who had given me shelter during my emergency. I faced the greatest emergency of my life. Unless you have gone through a similar experience, you cannot possibly know how I felt. Such experiences cannot be described. To be understood, they must be felt. The most dramatic moment of my life. The turn came suddenly in fall 1927, more than a year after the Canton incident. I left the house one night and walked up to the public school building on top of a hill above the town. I had reached a decision to fight the matter out with myself before that night ended. I began to walk around the building, trying to force my befuddled brain to think clearly. I must have made several hundred trips around the building before anything which even remotely resembled organized thought began to take place in my mind. As I walked, I repeated over and over to myself, there is a way out, and I'm going to find it before I go back to the house. I must have repeated that sentence a thousand times. Moreover, I meant exactly what I was saying. I was thoroughly disgusted with myself, but I entertained a hope of salvation. Then, like a flash of lightning out of a clear sky, an idea burst into my mind with such force that the impulse drove my blood up and down my veins. This is your testing time. You've been reduced to poverty and humiliated in order that you might be forced to discover your other self. For the first time in years, I recalled what Mr. Carnegie had said about this other self. 
I recalled now that he said I would discover it toward the end of my labor of research into the causes of failure and success, and that the discovery usually came as the result of an emergency, when men are forced to change their habits and to think their way out of difficulty. I continued to walk around the schoolhouse, but now I was walking on air. Subconsciously, I seemed to know that I was about to be released from the self-made prison into which I had cast myself. I realized that this great emergency had brought me an opportunity not merely to discover my other self, but to test the soundness of the philosophy of achievement which I had been teaching others as being workable. Soon I would know whether it would work or not. I made up my mind that if it did not work, I would burn the manuscripts I had written and never again be guilty of telling other people that they were the masters of their fate, the captains of their souls. The full moon was just rising over the mountaintop. I had never seen it shine so brightly before. As I stood gazing at it, another thought flashed into my mind. It was this. You have been telling other people how to master fear and how to surmount the difficulties which arise out of the emergencies of life. From now on, you can speak with authority because you are about to rise above your own difficulties with courage and purpose, resolute and unafraid. With that thought came a change in the chemistry of my being, which lifted me into a state of exultation I had never before known. My brain began to clear itself of the state of lethargy into which it had lapsed. My faculty of reason began to work once more. For a brief moment, I was happy to have had the privilege of going through those long months of torment, because the experience provided an opportunity for me to test the soundness of the principles of achievement which I had so laboriously wrested from my research. When this thought came to me, I stopped still, drew my feet closely together, saluted, I did not know what or whom, and stood rigidly at attention for several minutes. This seemed at first like a foolish thing to do, but while I was standing there, another thought came through in the form of an order that was as brief and snappy as any ever given by a military commander to a subordinate. The order said, Tomorrow, get into your automobile and drive to Philadelphia, where you will receive aid in publishing your philosophy of achievement. There was no further explanation and no modification of the order. As soon as I received it, I walked back to the house, went to bed, and slept with peace of mind such as I had not known for over a year. When I awoke the following morning, I got out of bed and immediately began to pack my clothes and make ready for the trip to Philadelphia. My reason told me that I was embarking upon a fool's mission. Who did I know in Philadelphia to whom I might apply for financial aid in publishing eight volumes of books at a cost of $25,000, I asked myself. Instantly, the answer to that question flashed into my mind as plainly as if it had been uttered in audible words. You are following orders now, instead of asking questions. Your other self will be in charge during this trip. There was another condition which seemed like my preparation to go to Philadelphia absurd. I had no money. This thought had barely occurred to me when my other self exploded it by giving another sharp order, saying, ask your brother-in-law for $50 and he will lend it to you. The order seemed definite and final. Without further hesitation, I followed instructions. When I asked my brother-in-law for the money, he said, why certainly, you can have $50, but if you're going to be gone very long, you'd better take 100 I thanked him, and I said I thought $50 would be enough. I knew it was not enough, but that was the amount my other self had commanded me to ask for, and that is the amount I secured. I was greatly relieved when I found that my brother-in-law was not going to ask me why I was going to Philadelphia. 
If he had known all that had taken place in my mind during the previous night, he perhaps would have thought I should go to a psychiatric hospital for treatment instead of going to Philadelphia on a wild goose chase. My other self takes command. I left with my head telling me I was a fool and my other self commanding me to ignore the challenge and carry out my instructions. I drove all night, arriving in Philadelphia the next morning. My first thought was to look up a modestly priced boarding house where I could rent a room for about $1 a day. Here again, my other self took charge and gave the command to register at the most exclusive hotel in the city. With a little more than $40 of my remaining capital in my pocket, it seemed like financial suicide when I marched up to the desk and asked for a room. Or rather, I should say I started to ask for a room when my newly discovered other self gave the order to ask for a suite of rooms, the cost of which would about consume my remaining capital in two days. I obeyed. The bellboy picked up my bags, handed me my claim check for my automobile, and bowed me toward the elevator as if I were the Prince of Wales. It was the first time in more than a year that any human being had shown me such deference. My own relatives, with whom I had been living far from having shown me deference, had, so I imagined, felt that I was a burden on their hands, and I'm sure that I was, because no man in the frame of mind that I had been for the past year could be anything other than a burden to all with whom he came into contact. It was becoming apparent that my other self was determined to wean me away from the inferiority complex which I had developed. I tossed the bellboy a dollar. I started to estimate what my hotel would be by the end of the week when my other self commanded me to get my mind entirely off of all thoughts of limitation and to conduct myself for the time being just as I would if I had all the money I wanted in my pockets. The experience I was passing through was both new and strange to me. I had never posed as being anything other than what I believed myself to be. For nearly half an hour, this other self gave orders which I followed to the letter during the subsequent period of my stay in Philadelphia. The instructions were given through the medium of thought, which presented themselves in my mind with such force that they were readily distinguishable from my ordinarily self-created thoughts. I receive strange orders from a strange source. My instructions began in this fashion. You are now completely in charge of your other self. You are entitled to know that two entities occupy your body, as in fact two similar entities occupy the body of each living person on earth. One of these entities is motivated by and responds to the impulse of fear. The other is motivated by and responds to the impulse of faith. For more than a year, you've been driven like a slave by the fear entity. Night before last, the faith entity gained control over your physical body, and you are now motivated by that entity. For the sake of convenience, you may call this faith entity your other self. It knows no limitations, has no fears, and recognizes no such word as impossible. You were directed to select this environment of luxury in a good hotel as a means of discouraging the return to power of the fear entity. That fear-motivated old self is not dead, it has merely been dethroned. And it will follow you around wherever you go, awaiting a favorable opportunity to step in and take charge of you again. It can gain control of you only through your thoughts. Remember this, and keep the doors to your mind tightly closed against all thoughts which seek to limit you in any manner whatsoever, and you will be safe. Do not permit yourself to worry about the money you will need for your immediate expenses. That will come to you by the time you must have it. Now, let us get down to business. 
First of all, you should know that the faith entity now in charge of your body performs no miracles, nor does it work in opposition to any of nature's laws. As long as it is in charge of your body, it will guide you when you call on it, through impulses of thought which it will place in your mind, in carrying out your plans through the most logical and convenient natural media available. Above everything else, get this fact clearly fixed in your mind, that your other self will not do your work for you. It will only guide you intelligently in achieving for yourself the objects of your desires. This other self will aid you in translating your plans into reality. Moreover, you should know that it begins always with your major or most pronounced desire. At this time, your major desire, the one which brought you here, is to publish and distribute the results of your research into the causes of success and failure. You estimate that you will need approximately $25,000. Among your acquaintances, there is a man who will supply you with this needed capital. Begin at once to call into your mind the names of all persons of your acquaintance whom you have reason to believe might be induced to furnish the financial aid you require. When the name of the logical person comes into your mind, you will recognize it immediately. Communicate with that person, and the aid you seek will be given. In your approach, however, present your request in terminology such as you would use in the usual course of business transactions. Make no reference whatsoever to this introduction you have had to your other self. If you violate these instructions, you will meet with temporary defeat. Your other self will remain in charge and continue to direct you as long as you rely upon it. Keep doubt and fear and worry and all thoughts of limitation entirely out of your mind. That will be all for the present. You will now begin to move of your own free will, precisely as you did before you discovered your other self. Physically, you are the same as you've always been. Therefore, no one will recognize that any change has taken place in you. I looked around the room, blinked my eyes, and to make sure that I was not dreaming, I got up and walked over to a mirror and looked at myself closely. The expression on my face had changed from one of doubt to one of courage and faith. There was no longer any doubt in my mind that my physical body was in charge of an influence far different from the one which had been dethroned two nights before as I walked around that schoolhouse in West Virginia.